0: a company or a herd or a system that's dealing with them in the same ways that they normally would, they may have to take increased measures to control the disease. But once it's controlled, no one talks about it anymore.
1: Hello. Welcome to this edition of Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Engelheim. My name is Peter Best. This Meet the Expert podcast, our subject is going to be high virulence forms of the PERS virus. And we're lucky to have two experts to help us with it. One is Dr. Andrea Latinik, who is Professor of Swine uh, Medicine at the University of Veterinary Medicine Vienna in Austria. And also, we have with us Dr. Greg Stevenson. And Greg is the uh, professor of veterinary pathology in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Iowa State University in the United States. And uh, you're a veterinary diagnostic pathologist in the uh, ISU Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. Both very much experienced with PERS. Uh, Greg in the USA and North America and Andrea with European And it'd be interesting to hear from you about those experiences. But I want to start with a very general question first, just to understand. I mean, what is meant by describing a particular form of PERS virus as high virulence? Andrea, could you please suggest?
2: Well, I guess it's a a strain of PERS that is causing more disease than we usually find in an area. And I guess it depends also a bit on the region you're looking at. So a highly pathogenic strain in Asia might be different than a highly pathogenic strain in Europe, where we often have mild forms of the disease. But then also every once in a while we have more severe uh, cases or strains that cause more severe forms of the disease. More
1: severe than normal. Would you agree with that or... uh, to me, are there many degrees of virulence between normal and high virulence?
0: There are. I mean, there are strains of PERS virus that cause very little disease. And then there are the probably the highest pathogenicity ones that have been described in Southeast Asia. Um, the ones that we see in the U.S. are also type 2 strains as they are in Southeast Asia, which are on average a bit more virulent than the type 1 strains um, here in Europe. Um, but among ours, we have some that share many of the features that are described in Southeast Asia, but the majority of the strains we deal with are somewhat less virulent than those.
1: And virulence and pathogenicity in this case can be interchangeable terms. The virulence being expressed in disease per se, is that correct? Or yes. is, is there a difference there? Uh, and,
2: one of the difference might be that in virulence you have more different levels, I would say. Well, Pathogenic is more a yes or no. Is, is, is a pathogen able to cause disease? Then it's pathogenic, yes or no. While on the scale, we have a lot of variation in, in the level of virulence.
1: Yeah. Uh, and how frequently uh, do higher virulence forms of PERS virus occur today? Uh, can we take the European experience first, please, Dr. Oh. Ladnick?
2: I guess it happens more often outside Europe or in Eastern Europe compared to Western Europe, where most of our strains are subtype 1, as you might also classify them. But even here, once in a while, we have uh, more virulent forms. But of course, they occur, I guess, more often in the US and even more often than that in, in Asia.
1: And would you agree that uh, these uh, fr- the frequency has uh, remain the same, or would you consider the frequency with which they're occurring has increased over time?
0: Well, I think probably something that we would consider higher virulence we see more often, but I would qualify that um, when when the term high path strain was kind of characterized in uh, China first and then spreading through Southeast Asia. They kind of described a constellation of lesions and and features, um, along with very high mortality, as kind of characterizing what they were describing as these, what they characterized as high path strains, and I would um, agree um, with what was said before. You know, when I think about high virulence strains, it typically is within the context of some feature of the disease that is more severe than we normally see. Uh, For example, um, we have seen, they're still periodic, but we're seeing increased frequency of strains where uh, clinical nervous disease with significant mortality is a component. And it seems to be being caused by those strains of PERS virus, which is a feature that's been described with some of the high path strains in Southeast Asia. That's something that we just didn't see before.
1: Has a neurological
0: component been mentioned in European ones?
2: No, not in our experiences yet.
0: Yeah, and from our standpoint, um, it was hard for us to believe that the lesions we were seeing were actually being caused by PERS virus. And we've done next generation sequencing on those brains several times now, and we continue to find... PERS virus is the only significant virus we're finding in those brains. And
2: then you saw a non-suppurative encephalitis, or what? Yes,
0: actually a vasculitis and encephalitis, vasculitis. but it's quite severe. And immunohistochemistry and in situ hybridization both demonstrate large amounts of virus within the lesion.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Would Would you agree uh, that uh, generally that uh, higher virulent types are seen more often in type two? PERS viruses than in type 1 types.
0: Well, I think that's generally what's been reported in the literature. I mean, my experience um, is mostly with type 2 strains. We yes. do have some type 1 strains in the U.S., but they're really of pretty low virulence.
2: And I guess in the European, it depends where you look at. I mean, most, some of the most severe forms of the European occur in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and in the subtype two and three um, of the European purse, there might be also some very virulent strains, but they have not spread uh, further west to, to Western Europe.
1: Yes. How do they compare with the American ones in terms of their virulence and their, their expression, how you see them? Would you say they are of an equal degree, the, the ones that have appeared in type one?
2: Um, I, I don't have too much experience with this subtype 2 and subtype 3 strains, like the LENA strain, as it is described. And what you hear from the few um, experiments that might have been done, it's very similar, I guess. And they're also quite quite severe in the, the clinical form of the disease that they cause. But I guess we don't know as much about those strains as we probably do about type 2.
0: Right. I... I just know having reviewed the literature also in, in writing the chapter in Diseases of Swine, I don't make a lot of comparisons because there just isn't that much literature. But it would seem, based on the literature there is, um, that the Lena strain is fairly severe when it's, when it's been reported and would be, I don't know that it manifests all of the features that have been described in Southeast Asia, but compared to the ones we see with the exception of the nervous signs, it seems to be about as severe.
2: But I guess the problem is that in those countries we don't get that much information, probably not as proper diagnostics as you have it in the US, and so there is not that much knowledge about those strains in the field compared to type 2 PERS, I guess.
0: Yes.
1: Do we know what leads to the development of higher, higher virulence types? Is this just a natural consequence of the way the PERS virus replicates and recombines and so on, or are there other external factors at play?
2: If we would know that, that would be a big step forward, I guess. But so far, we don't know any um, linkage between the genetic background of the virus and its uh, uh, outcome or the severity of the disease that it's causing. So for for these highly pathogenic Asian strains that first popped up with First, there was this idea that deletions in in a non-structural protein might be the cause and that we have found the clue of what we have to look at in, in the genetic information of the virus to then know if it's going to be a very severe form or not. But then other very severe strains popped up and they didn't have those deletions. So we still don't know the connects between how does the genetic background have to be um, and how would it uh, look like in the phenotype of uh, that virus and how severe is the disease going to be? So we don't,
1: right. we can't attribute virulence to any features of not these to particular the genetics. viruses. Yeah.
2: Genetic w- features. Not, not to any diagnostic tool that we can use. Right. We, I mean, we can link it to what we see in the yes. farm or what we can see when we experimentally put that strain into pigs.
0: Right. So it's descriptive based upon what it does rather than rather than just descriptive in terms of describing right. the genes in, in a predictive fashion.
1: Right. Yes, right.
0: which would
2: makes it, it so complicated yeah. at yeah. Yeah. The end.
1: It would be very helpful, I suppose, yep. f- for you to be able to express virulence in, in your characterization of a gene by its genetic code. Sure. And, and we're unable to do so. You are listening to Meet the Expert. A new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice, presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. If you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline. But going back, uh, if I may, the, the, to me the you know the evolution of. The pers virus over time has been a result of this very rapid mutation and recombination ability of the virus, and it which has led to this periodic emergence of these atypically high virulent strains. Now, to me, that's logical only if these high virulent strains had occurred more often than it seems to be the case. Now, is this me not knowing how many there are out there? Is it not? a question of reporting or recognition or do they genuinely only occur very rarely? Uh, 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 The ones we know, uh, there aren't many others out there. Do you think there are others we don't know about? That occur all the time well
2: speaking for the european situation i think we know about the very virulent strains and probably it's also the same because when a very severe strain pops up in the u.s you also know about it because usually they cause severe disease and in those cases you start to do diagnostics and uh, often also more than simply a pcr test yes or no you want to know the sequences or in our case in those uh, very severe cases we also go for a Full genome sequences. We try to get the full genetic information about those because we only have that very rarely. So it's only individual strains then. But I guess we would know of them if there would be more out because in in those cases you do your diagnostics. We so don't that, know about lower virulent strains probably in our herds when when you don't do diagnostics. The, the issue may be an issue of of how what we're actually what we're
0: defining as knowing because. Yep. Because if you're doing routine diagnostics and if you're the veterinarians that are servicing those herds, um, you know you're just experiencing something that's, that's much more virulent um, under the same environmental circumstances than you've been experiencing prior. And in the diagnostic laboratory, I know, for example... When I look at lungs and there is tremendous type 2 pneumocyte hyperplasia, it tells me that there's been far more apoptosis, which is a feature of high virulent strains versus Mm. low virulent strains. But that doesn't mean that I publish a paper about it and that you know about it. Um, An example would be um, one of the earlier high virulent strains described in the US was described by Bill Mingling, who's a virologist at National Animal Disease Center, now retired. But the story behind that strain is they were wanting to do comparisons of virulence of some strains in a study. So he called the diagnostic laboratories and it just happened that the Minnesota diagnostic laboratory said, yeah, we just had a really severe break and we can get that virus for you. Um, from central Minnesota. So they sent the virus to NADC and then they used it in their study and published it. That's why we know about that strain. Had Bill not wanted to do that study, um, the people in Minnesota and the practice would have known about it, but we wouldn't know about it today. So it's a little difficult to give you numbers. Um, I see strains that are more virulent than others and some quite virulent that have features that I don't see routinely, um, we see those with some frequency. Um, but they're within the context of a, of a, a company or a herd or a system that's dealing with them in the same ways that they normally would. They may have to take increased measures to control the disease, but once it's controlled, no one talks about it anymore.
1: There, no doubt there's a considerable amount of research both in North America and in Europe looking at high virulence forms. Uh, can I talk North America first? What sort of areas are being investigated? What are the, the big questions as far as North America is concerned regarding high virulence forms of PERS?
0: Well, again, most of the studies have been descriptive. Um, they're looking at, at, at whether or not those high virulent strains um, do something more than the lower virulent strains do, um, one such group of studies was done by um, Brockmeyer and uh, and some others at National Animal Disease Center that were I was explaining earlier to you. They asked the question. Um, the, the Chinese had been claiming that they were having far more secondary bacterial bronchopneumonia in their high-path strains. So they had a Chinese strain and they had a, a U.S. high-path strain and then a, a lower-path strain that they'd used for a long time in studies. And then they used the two bacterial models, one of Bordetella and one of Pastorella that they'd already developed at NADC. Very quickly, they showed that, indeed, these high-path strains greatly predisposed to opportunistic bacterial bronchopneumonias compared to the lower virulent strains. And in fact, in some earlier studies with lower virulent strains, there'd been a question whether they did predispose in a in an experimental model to opportunistic bacterial pneumonia. Um, but these high path strains, they do severely so. And we could talk about that with with models looking at them in terms of bacterial invasion for septicemia, both in Strepsuus models, Haemophilus parasuus models. They cause more severe... Uh, they create an opportunity for more, more frequent um, opportunistic septicemia in animals.
2: Well, I guess for the European situation, when you want to do infectious experiments, you're really looking for a strain that in the end also in an experimental model is even causing disease because with the... Um, mm. The average uh, subtype 1 European-type purse, it's not that easy, particularly when it comes to a respiratory model in piglets, that you can even cause disease under the circumstances of an experiment with a mono-infection of PERS. Because in the herds, we have a lot of cofactors going on that influence the disease, but under experimental conditions, we keep very healthy, clean pigs Um, that don't have a lot of other co-infections going on in a very healthy environment, let's say so, with a lot of space and and perfect air, uh, filtered air and whatsoever. So with a lot of the European strains, you don't even cause very much disease in those peaks. So having a a hotter strain or a more severe strain is is really beneficial in that case. And that's why in our experiments, we really try to go for one strain that in the end is causing disease that you can in, induce cough in, in piglets and, and see a reduced weight performance and, and respiratory signs, more severe signs yeah. at the so end of the day. it's truly
1: pathogenic in the sense it's obviously mm-hmm. yeah. disease-causing, yeah. whereas in other forms less so, in less experimental so. Thing. What,
2: Under experimental settings, less so, yes. Uh, you might see some re- reduction in, in the weight gain for a few days, but then the pigs start to catch up with the milder version. And you might also see histologic lesions, but they also heal quite fast. Um, but with a more severe strain, is for sure easier.
1: And the questions that are being addressed, or would like to, you'd like to address, could you just uh, tell what would you say were the most important questions to be resolved about high virulence force?
2: Um, there are still, even after thirty years of pers research, a lot of open questions. So one of our focuses, for example, is looking at immune responses in pers. So what we try to figure out is um which cells are really uh, involved, particularly in the reproductive form of the disease. So how is the virus able to cross from the sow to, to the litter to, to infect the fetuses and what goes on locally in the maternal-fetal interface. So which immune, immune cells are important? Um, why is the virus not crossing in mid-gestation but in, in late gestation? So those are some of the questions. Um, but when it comes to uh, answering how can highly virulent strains mm. be different than low virulent strains? I mean, it's a good question. <laughs> it's it has something to do with replication. That's something that you can see, I guess that um, they replicate to higher um, numbers that we find more more of the virus in those high virulent strains compared to low virulent strains, and they cause more damage, I guess that's something yeah, the more would, lesions would for sure,
0: yeah. Oh, definitely. In fact, I was just looking back at some numbers before I came down here, and and uh, the in type two strains, the kind of the average strains um, during their peak viral replication, which is toward the end of the first week in most models, um, the the, the max titers you find in serum tend to be about five logs, um, 10 to the fifth TCID 50 per mil of serum in those. And to give you an idea, high path strains tend to be 10 to the eighth. So a thousand times more virus in the serum than the lower virulent strains. So then just in a broader sense, we have just this issue of, of why so much more virus, which would speak to the fact that there must be, at some level, a broader cell tropism in order to produce that much more virus. That's one question. And then we do know that that there's a lot of other features of those viruses that cause disease that seem to be augmented. They produce higher levels of cytokines, for example, and then all the associated reactions, secondary to those cytokines, the just generalized inflammatory reaction, um, uh, edema in tissues, uh, cellular responses in tissues are 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 more, are more marked. We see, as you just mentioned, with some of the high path strains, normally with the lower path strains, we expect it to, them to cross the placenta only efficiently in the third trimester. But with some of these high path strains, um, they seem to be a lot more adept at crossing the placenta um, in the second trimester. We it used to be a really odd circumstance when we would find mummified fetuses in the second trimester that were positive for PERS virus. Um, we hardly ever tested them because we just assumed it wasn't. In today's world, in Iowa, uh, we test them all for PERS virus because it. we used to think they would be parvo- more of them now are PERS virus than parvovirus. We are seeing across the placenta in second trimester some of these strains, which would, would speak, I would say, these are higher path strains than we've seen in the past if we're just looking at that component of the reproductive system. I was saying earlier, I see lesions in lungs that are more severe with the, the amount of damage to pneumocytes. When you damage pneumocytes in lungs, it's not just edema you have in these lungs, but you actually have thickened alveolar septa that take a while to repair. You're going to have higher mortality just associated with respiratory lesions in these pigs. And we see that. Those are higher path strains if we're just looking at lesions in lungs. And so they may not share all the features, but but some of these features are more severe than we've seen in the past.
1: You are listening to Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. If you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline. You talk about the maternal fetal interface and, you know, the, the ability to cross it, which I hadn't heard that before. Is there something within the virus that allows it to do earlier? And I'm, I'm struggling to imagine what that could be. You know, is, is there something stopping it going before and these Things can go around it. Have you? Uh, can you but help me out here? The big question
2: is: How can the virus even manage to cross the placental barrier in 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 the way that it is formed in the pig? It's an epitheliochorial type of placentation, so we have several layers in between maternal and fetal blood, and we know that piglets are even born antibody negative. So how can a virus uh, then? cross over and infect and in the end for most viruses we don't really understand if they infect epithelial cells then we can explain that it goes from the maternal layer of the endometrium directly into the fetal layer or the fetal placenta which are really next to each other Uh, but for PERS at least for the regular not highly virulent strains we don't assume that they infect epithelial cells so we don't assume that this is the way it crosses but we don't exactly know. Another hypothesis might be that infected cells might migrate from the, them to the, to the fetal site. Migrate? But How, please? Yeah, if we would know that. <laughs> that's a <laughs> good don't. question. Um, but in the end, we don't exactly know how, how the virus manages to cross over. And then it's also complicated to say how is a more virulent strain than capable of, of better crossing or crossing at a different stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It probably also has to do with the susceptible cells and, and cell tropism. I completely mm-hmm. agree. Because there has also been research that showed that Different types of macrophages are present in, in different stages of gestation, and there might be more cells that the virus can replicate in a different stages, and maybe that's an explanation. But we haven't experienced uh, midterm uh, pregnancy failures due to PERS or, or infections in mid gestation. So
0: mm-hmm. well, yeah, Like I said, yeah. we still see most of them in third trimester, but... Yeah. Um, we will see entire litters delivered where where their main complaint are second Mums. trimester size completely mummified fetuses, and they b- will be variable size like you would expect to see with parvo or at least suggesting that you're getting transmission between fetuses within i see a so litter. so it
1: goes from the mother to one fetus maybe and goes around the fetuses or would that be what you're saying because the Infected at different times of fetuses. Well,
2: that's something that also in our experiments we were hypothesizing about. What you definitely see is that there are always clusters of infected fetuses within a litter. And that brings up that suggestion that maybe it, it first infects the index or the first fetus and then it spreads laterally to the others. But then another experiment that we have done where we also tested the amniotic fluid did not really give the indication that it really comes from the neighbor. But in the end, yeah, it's, it's, it's still possible. For sure, it spreads slowly compared to other viruses. So it's not like um, it's infecting the sow and then it's going to the litter and all piglets are infected at the same time. So it's not all of them that are infected.
0: So can I ask you a question? Because you've been part of this huge study, right? This huge study (laughs) that's resulted in quite a few publications um, uh, where, where, what, that 90 days of gestation?
2: Uh, When we infected? When you infected. 85. 85 days of
0: gestation, third trimester, with a single strain. Yeah, uh, highly virulent. Highly virulent type 2 strain. And then looked at looked like almost everything you could think of possibly taking as a sample and then, uh, and then doing analysis on those. I was intrigued with this question about crossing the placenta in reading all of those papers that about the correlation between the number of, if I remember right, PERS virus positive macrophages in the maternal endometrium that correlated to the number of apoptotic um, maternal endometrial epithelial cells, as well as adjoining apoptotic fetal trophoblasts, creating little Gets. necrotic clefts. Yeah. Is that true? So theoretically, yeah. in that fashion, you have a method where you where you've put in apposition the fetal and the maternal lamp, um, basement membrane, yeah. which is a fairly porous
2: which then opens the gap to which opens the, the gap. virus to transmit then. yeah, yeah. And that was the hypothesis before our experiment, even coming from Hans Nauing's group from Belgium, right. that they said that right. the virus replicates uh, locally in the maternal fetal interface and it leads to apoptosis of infected and even surrounding cells and then leads to the separation of maternal endometrium and fetal placenta and kind of opens a gap that allows the virus to transmit And that fetal infection by itself doesn't have to be involved in in the pathogenicity. So the the fetus can even die just due to that um, separation of the fetal placenta without the fetus being infected. On the other hand, our research also showed that there is an association. So the more virus you find in the fetus, the more likely it is to die out of these very large numbers of of, uh, sows that we infected and, and fetuses that we investigated. So that also gave us an indication that what happens in the fetus, on the other hand, might also have some um, something to do with the, with the outcome. But for sure, that's, that's also one hypothesis that really, and that's why we focus in on that, which, which immune cells are involved there, because what happens locally in that maternal fetal interface might be really, really relevant um, for the outcome. So is the fetus going to die? Um, yes or no. But when we do our experiments and look into that uh, separation, some degree of separation you also see in control, so not infected, and then the question comes up: What is first, hen or egg? So maybe there is some level of separation present even in a healthy gestation, and that allows the virus to then transmit.
0: Well, can I ask you a question though? In in the separations that you see in your controls. Are those separations associated with discontinuity of the trophoblasts and the endothelium? Because I know yeah. I, I asked that question because just looking at normal placentas yeah. that I've looked at when I get uteruses from packing houses, you can see clefts. Yeah. You know, there's sometimes have mineralized debris in them, but they are complete with epithelium. They're just separation. Yeah, yeah,
2: no, the the epithelium is still complete. So still intact on both layers but there is a, a gap in between yeah. and, uh, they're not yeah, as attached them. as we as you would see them but if that is then the the gate for the virus to cross i don't know we i guess in the end we still don't know
0: yeah it would seem to me that if it could cross dual layers of epithelium um that it would be crossing all of the time
2: yeah yeah true
0: right i anyway we could talk a long time about that i'm i that's really great research. Honestly, it's uh, just the scale of it. You know, I, it, you, you sit there. The scale there
2: sh- was the, the, the background of that is that it was uh, planned to look into genetics and mm, the, yes. the, the, the genome of the host and the s- genetic susceptibility of the peak towards the disease. And whenever you do studies with genetics involved, then your numbers have to be quite high.
0: True, but it also gave you a lot of power for statistical yep. analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That for you sure. wouldn't have gotten some of the conclusions yep. you did otherwise. Too, and I, I know in looking at the study, I, if, if I were part of the study, I'm sure you do. You look and go. There's a hundred questions in terms of you'd like to use more strains. You'd like to have different, more kill dates, yep. so you can answer oh, yeah. some of the ancillary questions that, that, uh, you spend the rest of your career doing. Maybe. Yep.
2: And some of it also has been done and the group around John Harding, my previous supervisor that is the, mm-hmm. the chair of the, the whole group of doing that research in Canada is still working on that. And one of those questions was a time series um, that was done. So also starting to look at when do we actually see that virus yeah. cross over and it's surprising how fast it goes in the end, because already on day two after infection, we find the virus on the maternal side. Um, so in the endometrium which for sure we find it in the blood of the sow and it's, it's all over the body. But then already after uh, three more days, it has crossed over and we can already start seeing replication of the virus in the placenta and then it reaches the fetus. Um, so that goes quite fast.
1: That completes the first episode of this podcast, but please stay tuned for the second episode, which is available.